Welcome to the fifth episode of Starts at the Top, our brand new podcast about leadership, digital culture and change. I'm Paul Thomas. And I'm Zoe Anna. This podcast aims to bring you interviews with leaders from the public, private and third sector who are using digital to navigate uncertainty and forge a path to the future. A big thank you to all of our listeners, friends and family for supporting the podcast over the past few weeks. And we'd love to get your input into who we should speak to during our second season. So who are your digital and leadership heroes? Please do let us know. We'll share our contact details at the end of the episode as usual. Also, if you're enjoying the podcast, please do subscribe and share on our social channels. We're on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and would love it if you could leave us a review. So this episode is the last in the current season. We've done five episodes now and we are busy planning for what we want to do with the second season. We've learned a lot of lessons and we've grown as we've gone on. I think the end product has been good. I hope. I hope people like it. I hope people like what we're trying to do. And as I said, you know, we will develop it into season two with some really interesting ideas and some really interesting guests already. One of the things which I know we're really keen to look at as part of season two is about what this future uh, of work and organisations is going to look like. I think we're starting to get some tantalising glimpses of it as we gradually edge our way out of lockdown. There may be some going back in and going back out again, of course, along the way. But that's one thing that I think we would be really interested to hear any guest recommendations for who those people are, who you think are really pioneering use of digital at the moment, who, who are really demonstrating exemplary leadership as they start to help create this, this new world that we are gradually starting to see. Yeah, definitely. I think there's something around the way the work is done and how that is shifting uh, for the future, I think there's something about where we work. Place is going to play a massive role in this. As you said, I don't, can't see us escaping the kitchen and our bedrooms for a, a while yet. And I think the other thing is skills. I think there is a there is a need for a, a different skill set, not just in leadership, but in our day-to-day work. Uh, I think there's an interesting thing around what skills young people, uh, you know, not not oldies like us, but young people are going to need in the workplace uh, of the future because I think if it is going to be such an uncertain place, uncertain destination, then I think we need to really think carefully about the type of skills that uh, our kids are developing as they move into the workplace. Absolutely. I think that agility, that ability to adapt is going to be really, really key. Um, and one of the, the the books I was reading when I um, went away for last year's summer holiday was actually the uh, Yuval Harari book, um, which uh, is, is, is all about what does he think is going to happen in, in the future. Um, there's a brilliant, brilliant chapter on skills where he talks about how we really need to raise our, our kids to be very good at adapting to change because it might be that not only are they doing going to be doing jobs that haven't even been invented yet those jobs may only exist for a lifespan of five or ten years before they get automated or or something changes so our kids are going to need to have tremendous resilience and really really good digital skills 
Just related to this point, Zoe speaks here about the Charity Digital Skills report that was released this week. Really good news was that we got a forward from the Minister for Civil Society, Baroness Barron. So I was very pleased to have their support for the report again. So that was really good. Uh, But some really worrying trends, I think, as well as also some some reasons to be cheerful. Uh, So if starting with the cheerful stuff, uh, there's some really interesting findings about how charities are using digital to adapt to the pandemic. So for example, uh, 66%, uh, so two thirds of charities are delivering all work remotely now, which is very exciting, I think. Very exciting. Um, But then there's still some other really worrying findings where charities haven't been able to adapt to the pandemic, whether that's because of their digital skills they have in-house or whether their users are affected by the digital divide. So they may not have access to devices or, or data or have the skills to get online. And both of those things feel like really quite significant chunky problems that our sector needs to name and to do whatever we can to solve. That sounds amazing. Mm, yes, it's it's interesting. It's been a very uh, interesting exercise to do it right in the middle of this enormous change, probably one of the biggest changes we'll ever see in our, our, our lifetime. So it was brilliant to be able to gather the data on that Um, and I'm excited about some of the digital changes that I've seen here but it feels a little bit like uh, the kind of challenge we see in a lot of organisations where there may be um, a digital team who are doing really brilliant work and they are innovating and trying new things yet around them it might be that the leadership team still aren't fully on board with digital or there isn't anyone with the digital skills on on the board or they don't have a really good strategy in place or a clear idea of where digital is going to take them in a few years and it feels like those problems which I see in so many organizations are being played out in this year's report I'm hoping that it will show how charities are are changing at this time. Uh, we will only know whether it's a change for the long term when we do the 2021 report. And that'll be interesting to see whether charities are continuing in this vein or whether they have defaulted. I guess what I'm most concerned about is some of those key milestone questions that we we ask the the data hasn't shifted on them very much over the last few years so for example uh just over half 51% of charities still don't have a strategy for digital whether that's a standalone strategy or integrated into your organizational strategy i don't really care how it's done the point is organizations need to do the thinking about where they're going with digital how they're going to get there and what they're going to do and not do along the way and that number has barely shifted from 2019 and as I recall there hasn't been a lot of movement on it from 2018 and 2017 either. Following that discussion about the charity digital skills report we also had a conversation about challenges in other sectors in particular artists and the music industry. What I was looking for was um, examples where different industries were coping with uh, the lockdown, not even coping with digital, but coping with how to keep going through the lockdown. Um, And the industry that I was interested in talking about was the music industry, because it's 
one it's an industry that's massively um dear to my heart and uh there isn't a day that goes by when i'm not listening to some music but i've got really interested in the way that the music industry particularly the artists get revenue how they get paid for what they do at a huge proportion of what they earn is coming from gigs we have to have socially distanced gigs so you can't get enough people in a venue therefore it's not worth an artist putting a band together for a tour touring around the world and trying to make some money it's just not going to happen so I was going to tonight try and join uh, an Angel Olsen gig where she's been selling tickets to online streams a number of streams that you can join and listen to the listen to the gig that you could have been at I guess Nick Cave has just done one as well. So there's tickets available for a Nick Cave gig. I think it's just him and a piano um, at Alexandra Palace. You know, artists are going to start to bring those experiences into your home. I think it's really fascinating. You can see uh, a way that music becomes even more personal and more personalised. Digital is playing a role in helping to revive uh, that industry. That's so interesting, isn't it? Because as you were talking, about the music industry there I was thinking about different ways that different artists are using digital to create a bit of a a different more personal connection with people at this time and and a couple of examples sprung to mind there have you signed up to the um Nick Cave Red Hand files have you come across that yes oh it's it's beautiful isn't it just incredibly moving the way people submit these really difficult situations they're facing particularly the ones around loss and loss of a child and where he gives them this incredibly heartfelt really moving voice where he he very much bears his his soul to them and and shows all his his vulnerabilities and I think it's it's so fascinating to see artists at a time when they can't get in the room with people and they can't connect with them, finding other really meaningful ways to to, to build those relationships. And the other one that I was thinking of is uh, there's a stand-up comedian who I really like called uh, Catherine Ryan, who is mm-hmm. very acerbic and 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 funny and incredibly sharp uh, and she's got this podcast which I think she launched either just before or quite early on in in lockdown which is is shows a very different side of her of her personality where she'll she'll talk about these incredibly tough quite difficult topics things like baby loss and relationships and it's it's really thoughtful and interesting and and challenging and I'm sure it will lead to her building this whole new audience. Yeah it's interesting isn't it that the I think the podcast industry if you like that we've joined has really gone from strength (laughs) to strength over the lockdown period from a stand-up's point of view and then Darshan talked about stand-up is sort of side hustle as you as you put it. There's no online solution for that. There's no way that you can replicate what a stand-up comedian needs or the atmosphere that a stand-up comedian creates in a room full of people. You cannot recreate that online. So finding new ways to express themselves, finding new ways to uh, deliver comedy is really important. Or if it's not comedy, then as you say with, with Catherine Ryan, it's exploring other sides of their personality that they can get something from themselves and give something back to their audiences.
Yeah, absolutely. And now for our interview. I am very excited to welcome to the podcast today, Darshan Sangvacha. Darshan is the founder of social innovation studio Super Being Labs. He has 14 years of experience using design and tech for good, helping tackle complex social problems, working with clients such as Breast Cancer Now, Action for Children, The Brilliant Club, NCBO, Unlimited, The Cabinet Office, uh, Cast, Telefonica and many more. Through working on multiple impact areas that all come together, Super Being Labs is on a mission to design a world that truly enables the best of human potential. Darshan is also the co-founder of Being Mankind, a project created by Super Being Labs, which uses storytelling to help inspire boys to shun damaging gender stereotypes. Outside of work, Darshan is a non-exec at Sporting Memories Network, a social enterprise using sporting reminiscence to fight dementia and isolation for the elderly, chair for STCA, a community charity in King's Cross, and he's also on the Ventures Advisory Board at Unlimited, the Foundation for Social Entrepreneurs. Darshan, welcome to the podcast. Well, th- thank you for having me on and thanks for that intro. Wow. Oh, well, we're so delighted that, that you're here. Um, and I can't think of a better person to close our first season on the podcast with, um, because whenever we've met, I've always been struck by your um, optimism and obviously all your fantastic work around innovation and social change is is very much the route I think that's eventually going to take us through to help the economy recover and to really light a path uh, towards recovery so we're really excited to explore all of that with you here today. Oh, well, I think the government needs to get you to call everyone in the UK with upbeat words like that. I do my best. If you give me a list of numbers, <laughs> I could start after this podcast. <laughs> so before we talk about digital, um, one of the things that I was just fascinated to discover about you is that you, you've got this kind of side hustle doing stand-up comedy. And as someone who loves stand-up comedy, um, I wanted to talk to you a bit about that before we, we dive into the conversation around leadership. And it's cool. always struck me that leadership and uh, stand-up comedy, you know, they're both really, really tough. They're, they're really sort of challenging lines of work. And I was wondering what your take was on what leaders could really learn from stand-up comedians. Um, it's interesting you asked us. We actually used to run a programme to try and get um, stand-up courses into leadership teams in charities. Um, and the idea was that there are things you can learn, but I think the number one thing is like how to stop caring about looking stupid. You are going in with the best will in the world, and if things go wrong, as long as no one gets harmed, it's no big deal. And you might get egg on your face, but sometimes, you know, you've got to own that and be like, you know what, I learned from it. Um, so I think it's that ability to just try and not worry that you're going to look like an idiot. Um, because you know what, you might look like an idiot once or twice, but not forever. You know, if I could, improv in every single leadership uh, team would be amazing. I think that's related to that is also the ability, like, it's something that you can hone. It's just like saying, okay, here's like, a topic here's another topic here's another topic here's another topic and how do you connect them together to make something bigger than those individual topics and and make that mean something to someone i think that's really important that ultimately that's what that's what innovation is right it's it's being able to 
connect the dots and find the patterns and make disparate things bigger than they are for an outcome. I think that's something that you learn with comedy quite quickly, especially with when you're bantering with a crowd. Like, you know, someone says something, someone else says something, 10 minutes later you might call back to it um, because you have connected those two things. And, And the only difference is that people aren't expecting it, which is why they find it funny. The difference with the third sector is that we should be more kind of empathetic of, the, of users' needs, and therefore, by the time they get something, it should be something that they needed and expected to solve a problem that they had. But wouldn't it be nice to give them something extra on top just to surprise them in a, in a positive way? Um, so that's number two, is like connecting those dots and, and giving someone a surprise. And I think the third thing is also when you're on, uh, on when you're having a gig and there are people on before you and after you, you don't know what they're going to say. You don't know what they're going to come up with. Innovation's a bit like that, you know. You've got to accept that just before you launch something, someone else might have launched it just before you that same day. Just after you've done something, someone else will come, with, come up with something re- way better on the same thing. And at that point, you start to kind of say, it's not, a, it's not a dead end. How do, I, how do I make what I have better so it helps even more? How do I collaborate? And that's how kind of comedic troops happen, right? People start to appreciate that, you know, together they're even funnier. It's just that ability to not care about looking like an idiot. But as I said, as long as no one gets hurt, that's a, that's a good thing to have. Uh, I've met a lot of leaders who are, who are amazing and, and awesomely funny, but they wouldn't be allowed to crack a joke in a board meeting. And that's quite sad. There's so much there around um, being comfortable with failure about yeah. the, the power of lateral thinking yeah. and also being open to those possibilities around collaboration tell me more that's a really interesting point around why traditional as it were ways of, of learning about leadership don't really take those factors into account because they, they seem so important why do you think that is it's this idea that there is a cookie cutter approach or a paint by numbers type approach to leadership that if you learn these 20 things you're sorted and that leadership is about everything that comes from you as opposed to everything that comes from you and the people around you together. That often gets forgotten. So like, you know, we've got a big problem with like hero leadership. The projects work because of that person. Well, it didn't. It worked because umpteen people worked on it in the background. And the, and the reason that happens is because people like to pin a mask to someone to, to sort of say they were responsible for this, for, for both sides of the thing. If things go wrong or if things go right, ultimately leadership is about dealing with the unknown. If you're seriously innovating, you're going to be in the unknown all the time. It's your job to mitigate the risks. Um, you can't learn that from a course. You can only learn that by doing it. And therefore, you need more opportunities. We have to stop waiting for leadership to be an endpoint. We have to give people opportunities to be leaders before they've taken a course, before they've done an MBA, before they've been in a leadership position, because then they are dealing with the unknown and they're adapting and they're learning. They're becoming more resilient. They're winning and they're losing, but they're learning and they're getting better each and every time. For me, that's very much about how leadership is is not a uh, final destination. It's it's mm. an iterative thing, and mm. and I guess if we think about some of those traditional kind of linear career structures, which seem to me such a thing of the past now, then mm. people really need to start looking at leadership differently. That kind of top-down approach is problematic. It gives perverse motivations um, to kind of hide stuff as well, right? I mean, honesty can't be possible if I can't be vulnerable. So I won't be. Um, And if I look through that course book that I took uh, and it doesn't have a section on how to be vulnerable, well, then I don't know what to do anymore. We need to rethink all of that. Are there any particular skills that you think that um, leaders should be kind of borrowing from stand-up comedians, as it were, to to get them through the crisis? 
One big thing is that your audience is unlike stand-up is not in front of you. This is the time when actually, it's a weird, weird thing, because this is the time where stand-ups are suffering. They haven't got an audience to perform to. Um, and doing it virtually is really, really hard, whereas the third sector actually has the ability to serve people digitally. What they can learn is how to have that sort of crowd banter back and forth, but using it, doing it digitally, like learning more about your user, your service user, more importantly, learning about people around them, their motivations, etc. I think that skill of rapidly getting that information, because you can try stuff really, really quickly and say, look, I had a hunch. It was, it was validated. I tried it. This is what happened. And I made sure I did it all responsibly. Now I need your sign-off to take it to the next level. If we could get every charity doing that, we're not burdening them with more work. I don't know a single charity that's not in a situation which is really, really stressful. And I don't know a single charity that doesn't have people that really, really care. We have to be responsible as well. That innovation takes time and it requires headspace. And this is a time when a lot of people are stressed out. Um, A lot of people are grieving. A lot of people are... Their headspace is just crammed with other stuff. In their comedy analogy, is like, who's the MC? Who's helping them? Who's helping them? Uh, get through this night that person is really important and in this case it's going to be organizations like catalyst like cast like yourself like ncvo organizations that are there as back as backup to get them through it i just hope all of these organizations that are doing incredible things have that support keep getting that support and have someone giving them a hug as they try out these things because i can't imagine how stressful it must be right now to not know if your organization is going to make it through the year and yet you know you've got service users that absolutely need your help and it's increased in volume. What can you do about that? I'm loving this whole thing about we don't need traditional leaders, we need MCs. I think that's such a brilliant model for the kind of leadership we need to see to get everyone through the crisis and to be more innovative Um that's that's brilliant thank you so building on that um i'd love to hear about examples of great digital innovation that you've seen during the pandemic so far and be lovely to hear about uh some of those examples but also what you think leaders can learn from them as well i'm gonna be controversial here uh, and answer that in a slightly different way i think a lot of a lot of people are digitizing stuff in ways that are affordable now so they are using things like zoom etc the the biggest stuff is still happening but i think the biggest positive development i've seen um, and if we wanted to call it an innovation because it is is the way that certain organizations are reskilling themselves or re um, thinking about how to do things that deep hard work that is needed for innovation to succeed the risk is if we don't do it it will get forgotten and so we'll see a stream of innovation being popped out with mvps left right and center but what will happen in the background is that the hard work will be missing the ability to get a chief exec to understand something, the ability to get a board to buy into, into say, co-design or to put open beaters out there and risk um, people saying it's rubbish. Under the air cover that we have from COVID, this is the time when we can convince all of our stakeholders to let us behave in a different way that's more conducive to innovation being possible, not just now, but for years going on. That's the innovation that I'm seeing that's most exciting to look at and see happen And how can leaders best help their teams innovate at a time like this? Uh, So I think the number one thing leaders need to remember is that, yes, they want to move at speed. Yes, there's urgency, but they need to give their team space right now to adapt to remote working because people have kids, people have small houses, people don't have a, a desk, people don't have a spare room, all that kind of stuff. I think the number one thing that they need to first do is say, you're at home, you're working under stressful conditions. This is the outcome we're trying to get. What do I need to do to help you to, to, ha- to be able to do that from home? 
Um, I think that's crucial. Once they've done that, the second thing is giving them the permission to experiment. Create uh, rail tracks that kind of say, okay, here's how we can experiment responsibly. I'm going to trust you with this, and here's how you'll know if you're going off track. But otherwise, I'm giving you the permission to make the decisions. Don't ask me for permission for basic stuff. Ask for permission if you need budget. Ask for permission if you need help with other stakeholders. Other than that, here are parameters that you can work within. Um, And so it's making it easier to allow someone to be confident that they're making quick, rapid, important decisions. Create the environment where people can work their best and you've given them the framework to do their work in the best way possible. I think that's crucial. And then the third thing is listening to them and giving them the space to come to you when things are going wrong. In certain remote environments, it's much easier for things to go wrong and not be spoken about. And that's why when you're doing a sprint, you have stand-ups, et cetera, so that people can talk th- through things, but that can often be forgotten in a remote environment. It's enabling that to happen, that space where people know that if things go wrong or they're confused or whatever, this is the person you go to to talk about it so that people know how to help you quickly enough. And if we can get those three things happening, I think some incredible things could happen from this remote environment where people aren't wasting two, three hours a day commuting. That's really good advice. I have to say I can fully relate to the thing about remote working because even though I've been been doing it for so long now, like like you as well, uh, I'm recording today from um, my nine-year-old son's bedroom <laughs> surra- <laughs> surrounded by Lego. So if you hear a loud crunch at any point, that will be me accidentally standing on one of his uh, Lego, <laughs> Lego stormtroopers. To innovate, we we all need a, a, a degree of, of space, don't we? So yeah. how can leaders, what can leaders do to give themselves some headspace, even a sliver of it during this time of, of massive crisis? I think this has to be one of those situations where, you know, you're always told, like, you can't help others if you don't look after yourself first. As a leader, if you're not fully on in the most healthy way possible. How are you going to help everyone else? So I think there has to be a degree of selfless selfishness, the ability to say, do you know what? We're in a dual process here. There, COVID is happening, so there's an urgent need, which I appreciate, and we have to deliver. But at the same time, COVID is happening, and there is going to be a different approach to things in the future, which we have to prepare for. So we, we don't want to be in a situation where we're digging ourselves out of this hole, and then another one is happening all around us. And now we're starting again to and we always have to keep digging. So leaders have to build the kind of permission around them to sort of get everyone to start thinking about today and tomorrow at the same time. The charities where people are kind of making that space and saying to their bosses or their board or their chief exec or their chair, et cetera, saying, Do you know what, I'm going to get the outcomes that we need for our for the people that we serve. But at the same time, I need a day a week or half a day a week for myself and my team to start imagining about what we do after this crisis has, the first bit of this crisis has moved to a different stage. That is really important. And that requires, again, that space to imagine. And if you don't have that imagination space and you don't fight for it, you don't carve it out, I don't know when you're going to get it. Working with a youth charity right now, one of the things around children whose parents are terminally ill, During COVID, you can imagine how stressed those kids are because their parents are vulnerable. There is also a risk that because they're vulnerable, they are going to lose parents earlier than they thought they were going to lose them, which is even more tragic. That charity needs to support them today, but that charity also needs to work out a strategy on how to support them in three months' time, in six months' time, in a year, because you know what? That trauma is going to be catalyzed 
in ways that we haven't seen before. So that charity, they don't find the space to imagine. They will serve their children well right now, but I don't know what will happen in, in the future. Luckily, that charity is finding space to imagine. And so, yeah, I think it's really crucial that leaders fight for that time. Yeah, absolutely. It's 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 no long. It's not a luxury, is it? It's it's an essential. Absolutely. And are there any really simple things that that people can do? Like, say, if there's anyone listening who who might not have the the the, the budget to to bring you guys in, um, mm-hmm. is there anything that people can do just to to get themselves to to think differently and to create that headspace? First of all. If you don't have the budget, don't worry, just message us. We'll help, like we can get you started on it. If you want to do it yourself, one exercise that I'd like to recommend to you is just reframing stuff. So spend 10 minutes a day, if you can, looking at your outcome areas, looking at the problems you're trying to solve and start asking if it's not sustainable. Think about the outcome for that service user. Think about a different way you can achieve that outcome. There's a case study about this in America where they started to look at dog shelters. So imagine how heartbreaking it must be to love a dog and take them to a a dog shelter, to abandon them, to give them up, and how heartbreaking it must be for someone who works in that shelter to take that dog in, try to get them adopted, and it doesn't work and they have to put them down. It's it's a tragedy all round. The people on on this exercise started to look at what happens if, why were people handing in their dog? If we said to them, what would it take? for you to keep your dog. We found so many things. And if the answer was more affordable than taking in the dog and all the other costs that come with it, they would fund it. But, you know, they found examples where um, single mothers would come in and they say, look, I love this dog. My children love this dog, but I have to give it up because if I don't, I can't feed my children. So it's a choice between my feeding my children or feeding the dog. So then the shelter would say, well, what happens if we gave you the money to feed the dog every week? What happens if we paid for your vet? Yeah. So they started doing that. And now a lot of dog shelters use that framework to reduce the amount of dogs in shelters. It doesn't cost much of anything to ask questions. So start to write down those things. Look at a different way of tackling it. Write down 10 to 20 reframes like within 10 minutes. Like, be quick, because sometimes when you're trying to be creative, you can almost rationalise it too much. But if you understand your subject really, really, really well, your brain is always on and it will always be thinking about stuff. And that's why people hit think about stuff in the shower, right? Because they care about something so much that their brain is percolating away, thinking about it. And then suddenly you'll be in the shower, you'll be in a queue at Tesco, uh, you'll, you'll, be, you'll be doing something else, you'll be watching something on Netflix and your brain will go, yeah, but listen, Dush, there's an answer. I've got an answer. Why didn't I think of that before? So there is time to imagine. There is space to do it. Take 10 minutes a day, write 10 to 20 different ideas down. Take that forward, scrap the ones that you think are utterly insane and just move forward. A brief tonal shift as we discuss Zoe's internet connection cutting out during the interview with Darshan and the subsequent conversation. We also need to do this bit about cake. Right. <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> at one point in the interview, oh. your internet connection cut out, and you, right. went, you went radio silent for about two or three minutes, and Darshan and I had a little chat, and he just made the assumption that you'd gone away to bake, because... That's what Zoe Amar does. She bakes and she does charity digital work too. Um, but but what, what transpired was apparently he's never had cake from Zoe Amar. 
He hasn't, has he? No, so he was he 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 just joked and said that you must be away baking. Uh and when he came but when you came back, we had a bit of a conversation about cake, which I included right in the middle of the interview, but then realized that there's no context for the conversation about cake right at the end of the interview without it being right in the middle. So I thought we should record a bit of an explainer to to share with our listeners why we suddenly start going on about cake. And perhaps a promise to our listeners that if you share this episode, if you like this episode, then Zoe Amar will find you and will bring you cake at some like point. A, like a more benevolent um, cake-based Liam Neeson. <laughs> I did not. I will find you I, and I will bake for you. I did not see a Liam Neeson reference getting into this podcast anywhere wow that's amazing oh dear conjures up images of me knocking on random windows of uh, our lovely listeners standing there with um a nice lemon drizzle cake outside their window at um late late at night but um i promise not to do that very nice anyway that explains why we start talking about cake with darshan I feel like everyone I know in the third sector has had cake from you, bar me. Like, <laughs> it's like, how do I get to a position where I can get some cake? Have you not uh, had any? I, no, I, I just in keep. The third sector, and I've had some. <laughs> oh, thanks, Paul. That's making me feel better. Um, <laughs> I've just seen photos and like people telling me about it. I'm like, brilliant. Well, how do we solve that? Um, but yeah, so. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I need to scale up my cake making, clearly. <laughs> you, you do, you do. Um, Reframe how you could make that happen. Um, there's two ways you can make that happen. You can stop giving everyone cake, in which case I'll feel better. You don't need to give me cake, but you're too nice. You won't do that. So we do need to work, find out how you're scaling your cake business. And I was interested actually in looking at the, the website for Super Being Lab. The second point on there is really, really interesting. The 70-30 skin in the game where you make investments into the projects you want to work on. And I just wondered if you could explain that in a little detail. And then also, is that transferable, do you think? I wonder about that in the private sector. I wonder about that as an approach from some of the agencies I would work with um, mm. in the past. When you say wonder about it, you mean as in you wouldn't or could it? No, wonder whether, I, whether, whether it helps. It yeah. would help organisations who want to do stuff but don't feel confident yeah. that they're doing the right thing necessarily or don't want to to put all of their budget, all of their eggs into one basket to work with organisations like yours or organisations that were willing to take some of the risk on at the start. But if that then mm. kicked in and worked, what an incredible model. The 70-30 thing is the problem of how procurement in the third sector works. By the time it gets to an agency or gets to a partner like us, a lot of assumptions have been made about how much something should cost. There's a lot of fear about getting it wrong. There's a lot of worry. So we kind of started saying, well, you know what? We need to approach this empathetically and sort of say, you know, we'll put some skin in the game because if we do, then at least you have faith to go back to your stakeholders and say, you know what? They're, they're putting some, some in. So we're willing to take the risk because, you know, there's an incentive to succeed. And also part of it is we've given you some help, therefore have more space to get the permission to carry on and keep doing it because... 
this is this, the other problem with innovation in the third sector is that it's not people don't know how to do it. They do. It's the fact that funding mechanisms are so broken. Like they are kind of spreadsheet based. They are basically Nostradamus funding. Like it's it's saying, you know, I'm going to make something in a year and this is how much I need. Well, how do you know that until you've started it? By the time people have spent the transfer money that they've had to on, say, on a, on a, on a beta, for example, nobody's really been fundraising for beyond that, for improvement, maintenance, carrying on building up the team whereas when you compare that with the private sector like so startups for example nobody says you know we're going to build a product for x amount and then when it starts working we're going to have less stuff and we're going to have less budget and it's going to miraculously look after itself so the idea was also like how do we create a structure that incentivizes people to say let's take a risk let's go on this adventure and when it works we did save some money so we're going to put that back in to keep making it better and therefore that bit of funding is already available in their head right does that make sense makes absolute sense it also comes down to sustainability you know we've all worked in businesses where margins are great for the first bit of work but if the, if the margin's zero from then on in what's the point of having a massive margin at the beginning and nothing going forward really it's not about the money it's about giving people the headspace to take bolder risks and feel more confident about taking them we all know this right you can't underestimate the psychology of risk-taking and innovation like you just can't like without it Without someone feeling comfortable and not scared the whole time, they're not going to take risks that could make something brilliant. Everything's going to be safe. And I, and I know that a lot of tech for good agencies kind of end up doing it by default because, you know what, it comes down to a more of a partnership mindset of we're going to innovate on this for the long haul. We've got a way of, we've got to find a way of paying for it together and we've got to help each other. You and I have shared some some previous frustrations and we've talked before about diversity and, and what really needs to change in the third sector and beyond uh, and why that be important to innovation, having diverse perspectives, um, but also just particularly speaking this week of all weeks with the, the riots that we've seen in, in the US and the incredible tension there, um, why it's so incredibly important that everyone comes together to solve this problem. Uh, so how can leaders build more diverse teams at a time like this? You literally have the pick of the best talent in the world, anywhere, right now. Um, there is no physical location pressure from stakeholders saying you have to hire and they have to be in the office i think one of the things that you know i I, i'm trying to encourage people that have asked me this question is to say write stuff make it public um so that the right people will read it and come forward and and make sure it's distributed in environments in areas where people are underserved someone was talking about advertising within universities well no advertise within colleges or advertise within non-russell group universities etc like you know or um, put, but basically put stuff out that a diversity of more people will look at intersectionally across every bit of diversity. You've got like literally talent everywhere. You can, you can find the best people in the world. You have to be in the mindset right now to say, I have a problem that I need sorted, but I need this talent for it to work. And I need them to know that I'm, that I'm looking for them. The only way to do that is to be public about it. You have to abandon these old school mechanisms of recruitment. All you're going to do is attract the usual suspects. All you're going to do is narrow that funnel down. What happens if your next best person is actually a someone who's who's settled here from Syria, is currently in Newcastle, 
are they really reading the garden job section or third sector jobs or whatever or any other good they're all good but is that where they're going absolutely not how are you going to find them so it has to be the thing that you have to make a commitment to say how do i make it easy for someone to get in touch with me how do i make it easy for them to know what i'm trying to do how do i make sure that i'm distributing my message not through the usual channels because if you don't do that it's not going to happen. And most importantly, you know, people could talk about this forever, but just hire diverse people. Like, stop hiring people that are similar to you. It's as simple as that. I can't work out how it's more difficult than that. You know, I, I read a case study about um, Salesforce, Mark Bernoff. Basically, they were saying, like, how do we make sure that women get paid the same as men? He was like, just pay them the same as, mm. like, just, just pay them. <laughs> uh, I, I, so it's like, we can have workshops, we can have conferences, we can write white papers. Just do the thing that you're supposed to do and stop asking how you do it because otherwise it's never going to happen right I, I don't know what do you think uh, I, I completely agree that you've, you've got to be intentional about it rather than just paying it lip service so um, about a year ago what's that 15 months ago now when I um, joined the board of Charity Digital Trust who used to be Tech Trust um, there was a moment when I, I really felt that um, my working relationship with the CEO um you know, was really strengthened because he came to me when I just joined the board and he was saying, look, I really want to make the board more diverse. And mm. can you give me some advice on how to do it? And just the fact that he asked that question and that he really yeah. wanted to change things for the better was yeah. really powerful and, and made me feel really included. Um, yeah. And we talked about how um, it's got to be more than than just messaging. It's, it's got to be linked to, um, it's not got to be that extra line on the job description. It's got to be about, look, we need more diverse people because it's going to help us develop the digital products and services of tomorrow exactly. uh, and and I think off off the back of that I mean we have actually improved some of the diversity on the board there's still some way to go um, but just the fact that he asked that question and like you said at the, the beginning of, of this podcast just was willing to be vulnerable and and say look I don't have all the answers on this but I'm yeah. going to talk to someone with some lived experience yeah. um, so that was yeah that that, that was, was really good and I'd really like to see more CEOs doing that. But I spoke to someone about this. It was this idea that if we want more diversity in the third sector, one proxy that you can use, and I know it's it's not representative because not everyone's on it, but if you look at Twitter and you look at what chief execs of charities are following or what chairs of charities are following, are they following anyone different to to the people that they're normally going to talk to offline anyway? And, and in which case, they're never opening their mind to different viewpoints. That tells me something that sort of says, are you making an effort to hear people that you say you should recruit but if you're not even simply pressing a follow button on on twitter well how much do you mean it um and it's a subconscious thing i don't think it's a it's more of a kind of i don't have time to listen well then make some changes unfollow a few people make a list or do something i've spoken to a few chief executives like yourself just as in someone has asked me this question and i sort of said well okay next time you have a workshop where it is filled with people with lived experience ask yourself why did I have nobody internally within my charity that also had this lived experience and therefore could give me a first-person perspective? Why did I have to drag people out from wherever they were to sit on a panel or sit in a workshop or whatever to basically rent their mind for an hour or two and then say goodbye to them? If you don't have anyone that's already in them, why have you not hired someone that's, that's there that may want a job? Often the answer I get to that is, 
we just don't have the budget or we don't have the space or we, you know, like, but you've just said you want to increase your diversity. There you have right in front of you an answer and you're not taking it. You just paid someone a 50 pound Amazon voucher for their heads, for their thoughts and their experiences instead of saying, here's a job. There are always opportunities to live in a way and work in a way that encourages diversity and practices inclusion all the time. It's up to someone to think about that. And like you said, it can't just be a line on a job description. That's such a good point because I'd, I'd really like to see more funders being really challenging about that issue you know saying Mm. to to people look how much how much are you really bringing this this lived experience into your organization particularly if you claim to speak for those people with the funding thing it's funders themselves that also need to practice that (laughs) it is still not a diverse environment Um, and that's why People I know have uh, launched Resourcing Racial Justice.org, which is a new fund for communities that are dealing with racial justice. Um, because I don't know if you saw recent stats, it's like something like 80% of BAME organisations will be uh, closing down within the next two months. Oh, yeah, I saw that. That's just awful news, isn't it? It's absolutely horrifying. Really awful. And the worry is that funding doesn't reach them in time because it never reaches them in normal times. You know, that group of people have kind of, you know, and things like Charity So White, you know, they've, they've, they've published their white paper, etc. Their working paper, I think, launched about a month ago around the impact of COVID on, on communities from BAME backgrounds. And, uh, you know, I mean, that doesn't that shouldn't have been needed if funders actually got involved. But luckily, I know loads of funders are, are making that strategic priority right now because they're listening and they're understanding. And again, it's because they've got great leadership that is thinking about how to do that. And that leadership has kind of, you know, it's like people like Cassie Robinson at National Lottery, people like that really thinking about how to make things fairer and inclusive. So I'm really encouraged that that's going to happen because there is a movement around it. But yeah, just live inclusion the whole time. Um, Just one final question. Because we are closing season one today of of the podcast, I'd just love to hear your thoughts on what you think this post-pandemic world is going to look like and what role digital will play and how leaders need to be preparing for that. (laughs) It's such a big big question, I know. It's a big question. Why were we ever in a position where when a pandemic hit, preparation was so weak? Like, how do we stop that from ever being a situation again? You know, Uh, a good example of that is um, the benefit system. You know, like by the time, if the unemployment figures keep going the way they are, then you might have three to four million people on universal credit uh, what is it, eight point something million people furloughed and, you know, with a furlough system changing, so you're, you're going to get more of those become unemployed. For the first time in, a, in, in forever, a lot of people are, are having experiences of universal credit. For the longest time, people with disabilities, um, people that lived in underserved areas and communities that didn't have the life chances that uh, privilege gives you, were banging the drum, constantly saying, like, you know, this the way the DWP works is not fair. The way the benefit system doesn't work. Suddenly, people on universal credit are realising the pain, and, and even then, they're getting more than some people with disabilities get. Some of them 20, 30 pounds more a week. It may not sound like a lot of money, but imagine if you had spent your entire life fighting for, for a chance to get what you're entitled to, and nobody listens, the public don't listen. And now suddenly, as soon as it affects everyone, people are like, well, how can you live on such little? 
Um, and even then, even now, you're still not getting as much as the the, the people the, the people that are now claiming. Can you imagine? So it's like for me, it's like how did we ever end up in a situation where that hard work, that deep work, that systems based stuff was ever allowed to be forgotten and and not solved? And how do we stop that happening again? You know, I would love someone to you know charities to come together and say we are going to take leadership on this and we're going to work out how to redesign the, our so our safety net. We're going to work together to do it. And I know people like at Income Max, which is a social enterprise, Lee there, he, you know, they are working on and imagining how to get people to thrive, how to create a safety net that enables people to thrive in their life rather than just get a little bit of here, a little bit of there that makes them feel like they're getting charity because ultimately everyone wants to thrive and too much of our safety net kind of just says, here you go, make do. And that's not enough. I also want to kind of see like how, you know, education is a perfect example of this. Some of the stuff that's being talked about right now is if the schools don't open, then vulnerable children are, 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 aren't going to be looked after. The question we have to ask is what kind of social security system, what kind of uh, health system, what kind of education system do we have where a child's safety and mental health is contingent on a school teacher alone? What can we do to clean up this mess on a systems level, a systems, uh, level and never, ever, ever be in a situation again where we let things go by? Because then once you have that foundation, that's when you can build innovation on top of it, right? Um, but until we have that, we're forever going to be building tiny little things that kind of don't touch the even the, ed- the edges of, of anything. And it will everything will always be a project rather than a mission. Darshan, thank you. That is such a wonderful, positive note to end the season on, to get us all really thinking big about how we tackle these problems. Thank you so much. I'm off to take an improv class, probably on Zoom, <laughs> and to make a cake right now. <laughs> well, c- combine them together. See if you can make it, see if you can make a cake with a with a crisp. Uh, see what happens. <laughs> I'll do my best. <laughs> I'll do my best. Thank you so much. This has just been a brilliant way to end our first season. Thank you. Uh, th- thank you, Zoe. I really appreciate uh, you having me on, and thanks for thanks for all the questions. That's that's Anne for cheering me up. <laughs> oh, you're very welcome. We you've cheered us up today, so thank you. I thought his interview was so interesting. I mean, all his points about how we really need to rip up the leadership rule book and not to see leadership as this kind of final destination, having toiled away and and risen through the various levels of an organisation. So it's no longer a linear thing, but to see it as a much more iterative thing where actually through different stages in your career you might be a different type of of leader depending on the organizations or the teams that you're leading or the context that you find yourself in or the kinds of organizations that that you work for Um, but so often I think we see leadership in a very fixed mindset rather than growth mindset way and that's what I thought was really fascinating and really liberating about Darshan's interview because he was he was talking about that how leaders need to fail they need to grow they need to change and particularly at the moment they need to acknowledge the enormous ambiguity uncertainty they're facing in their communications with the people that they lead and to 
to try new things he has some great tips for that around things like reframing but also making sure that you've got the basics in place around innovation as as well and having a, a, a really good process around things like service design and product development uh, so I thought there was there was so much there it was really interesting I learned a lot from that interview what did you think yeah, I, I completely agree. And I think one idea that stuck in my mind was that of the um, the dog's home. And it was a small example that he used about redefining the, the problem. Um, and I think that was interesting. So if, you, if you're faced with uh, people in economic depression who cannot figure out a way that they can keep their pets uh, alive as well as their children because they just can't afford to pay for them, uh, yet you're, you know, and you'd normally accept those uh, animals into your care, is there a way that you can divert the funding away from the care of the animals towards the, the the person that owns the animal? I think that was reframing a question that most organizations would be familiar with. You know, why would we pay for this when we could actually just go to the root cause? So I think redefining organizations around customer need or getting to customer need quicker was really, really interesting. I think he also talked about the small incremental changes that can help leaders get into the mindset where innovation can happen more naturally. A lot of organizations are seemingly tagging innovation on, and it sometimes isn't natural because it's not necessarily understood or embraced. But I think I like that idea of of sitting down with a notebook every day for a few minutes and just writing down some things, some ideas that you can then share with your teams. Shows a a sort of an open approach to to leadership as well as innovation. I thought there was some really interesting stuff about diversity. And that was, you know, it seems an obvious point. And I think it's a point that might have been made once or twice on this podcast. But don't hide behind well-meaning diversity policies. Recruit from diverse backgrounds. Go out and find these people. They are there. Um, don't pay lip service to it. I think that word lip service has come up time and time again, that organisations mm. can put their money where their mouth is. And if you really want to stand up for something, it's quite easy to do it. Just do it. Exactly. I think the the time for talking is over and we now need to focus on action. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think he made that point very well about going to places online where people wouldn't necessarily hear from you. If you really want to recruit, recruit people from a diverse background, then go and find out where they are because the skills that they can bring, the ideas that they can bring are, are, are there for the taking. You can just go out and reach out and, and grab them. And I really like that point about, yes, you bring people in to sit in a focus group and pay them a £50 Amazon voucher, but you'd be much better off giving them a job. Um, and then the other the other thing that really sort of struck home and I think I'd seen on the website was this idea that they invest into the projects that they they want to run. And now I come from a, a much more corporate background than you do, Zoe, but that to me was something that suddenly struck me. If they're investing into the projects that they want to see completed and you have organisations that maybe aren't approaching digital transformation or innovation in a way that's perhaps uh, natural because they are scared of um, failure or they're scared of uh, putting money and investing money into things that don't work, then perhaps working with organisations that are prepared to meet you halfway or some of the way with the work and the innovation that you're trying to build in 
is is a good idea and i just thought that was something that i'd like to or be interested to see if it actually exists in the corporate context because it's not something that i came across it's not an approach i've come across before either but i think it sounds so exciting and exactly how you should be doing things I think it works both ways, doesn't it? From a from an organisation's point of view, you know that you're working with a, an outside organisation or an agency that has skin in the game and investment into the project so that you know that it's, it's going to get their full attention and they want it to work as much as you do. Um, and from an agency point of view, I think it really enables you to pick and choose the types of projects that you want to be working on rather than making choices that you don't necessarily always want to make about the types of projects you can get involved in. Yeah, I thought it was a really uh, powerful range of of insights that he shared and exactly the, the person to be ending the first season with. So that's about it for season one of Starts at the Top. We're making plans for season two and we'll share an update as soon as we are ready to head back to the microphones. As usual, please do send us your feedback. We'd love to hear about anything that you feel you'll do differently after hearing from Darshan or any of our speakers from the series. You can share your plans, ideas or questions with us on Twitter. We're at Starts at the Top 1. That's at Starts at the Top number 1. And you can email us at Starts at the Top podcast at gmail.com. And please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you can. Thank you to all our listeners and all our speakers over the season and we'll speak to you very soon. Speak to you soon.